As you're being seated, I draw your attention to our second reading for the morning, which comes from the Gospel of St. Mark. We are continuing to look at the topic of the holiness of heart. How holy can a human heart be? What can God do in a human heart? And the text comes from the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel. I'll begin reading at verse 14. Then Jesus called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Particularly in the Gospel of Mark, that topic of hearing and listening to what you hear from God is an important topic. And I'm so grateful for Pastor Ken's prayer to remind us that we need to be people who know how to listen to the voice of God. Oftentimes we go to church and, you know, we hear things that we wish some of our family members would hear. But I encourage you, particularly this morning as you sit in this place, uh, to have the grace and the courage to seek to hear what God is saying to you as an individual. So Jesus said to the crowd, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. That's something else that's unique to the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, it seems like Jesus' disciples have a really hard time understanding Jesus. Uh, That's why uh, Ben Witherington, who's a great New Testament scholar, and I've had him preach for me several times in my churches, Ben Witherington says, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples should be referred to as the disciples because they never seem to quite get it. For some bizarre reason, I, I take a lot of comfort in that. So here's Jesus, he's just spoken to the crowd, but in verse 17, whenever he goes into the house with his disciples, they ask him about what he's just been speaking about. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? You probably didn't expect to be talking about sewers at church this morning. Then there's a parenthetical statement in Mark's Gospel. Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles for it is from within from the human heart that evil intentions come and then Jesus lists some of these evil intentions that can come from our heart fornication theft murder adultery avarice that's greed wickedness deceit licentiousness envy slander pride folly And then the summary verse, verse 23, Jesus concludes this segment by saying, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This, even this, is the word of God. 
Friends, would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for calling us together into this place. We, we know that we're here this morning by divine appointment. You have gathered us to yourself by calling us to this place. And Father, we pray that we will each one have ears to hear what you're saying to us today. We pray that we will allow you to take up residence in our hearts. And we know, God, that you are a jealous God. You want all of our heart. So God, help us to give you all of our heart, not just a portion of it. We pray, God, that we answer the call you've placed upon our lives. We are so graced by your desire to use us in this world. We are so humbled by your desperate desire to be in an intimate relationship with each one of us. So help us, oh God, to grow in that intimacy with you. May you become more real to us than our circumstances. May you become more real to us than our problems. May you become very, very real to us right now in these moments. We do ask again, God, Give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I am sure that all of us were heartbroken this past week by the continuing events in Af Afghanistan. I'm sure that we're all particularly grieving the fact that 13 young men were killed there and many of them just beginning to live their life and I suspect you join me in my continuing to grow admiration and appreciation for our military. My admiration, my appreciation for their bravery, their willingness to sacrifice not only for our nation but for the world around us as we seek to spread freedom and democracy to other lands. So I'm sure that we have been paying attention to Afghanistan. As I, as I saw those, those young men who were, who were killed recently in Afghanistan, I was mindful of a, of a new ad campaign that the United States Marine Corps has been producing. I've seen their billboards around the triad. I suspect you've seen some of their billboards around the triad. And that new ad campaign by the Marines shows a Marine in combat. And then it simply says, battles are won within. That's so true. Battles are won within. Whether it's a combat such as a Marine is going into, or just the battles of life each and every day, we know that the battles of life are won first and primarily within. What goes on in our life around us, what we do through our actions, all is a result of the battle within us. We know from the New Testament that as soon as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, spiritual warfare begins. Because there are forces in the world that want to draw us away from being a deeply committed follower of Jesus Christ to follow the ways of the world around us. And all of the actions in life are determined by the within part of us. 
We have to pay close attention to our heart. That's the language from the Bible. We have to pay close attention to our interior life because all of our exterior life flows from our interior life. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. If you remember Mark's Gospel, you remember that throughout Mark's Gospel, and pretty much the other Gospels also, you see these people who are following Jesus around because they, they want to catch Jesus or some of Jesus' followers doing something wrong. And it's primarily some of the religious leaders that are doing that in Jesus' day as they follow him around. Already in the Gospel of Mark, they, they have complained that Jesus and his followers did not fast appropriately at the right times. They've already, in the Gospel of Mark, complained that Jesus and his followers did not keep the Sabbath appropriately. And here in this text, in, in chapter 7, they are complaining yet again to Jesus that he and his followers are not observing the kosher laws correctly. They're not even washing themselves according to the purity laws before they eat, and sometimes they, they eat things that are not kosher, kashrut. They eat things that are forbidden in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So particularly when we come to a text such as this in the New Testament, we have to be very, very careful. You have to understand this is not a debate here between a Christian and a Jew. Uh, that sort of understanding of these texts is what has led Christians historically throughout the centuries to become rather anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. And that sort of understanding, you know, Jesus and the Christians against the Jewish leaders and the Jewish leaders do it all wrong, that sort of understanding in Christian circles is part, part of what birthed the Holocaust. And that's why particularly since World War II and New Testament studies, we've tried to do better. We've tried to really pay attention to this book we're reading. And if we pay attention to this book we're reading, we learn some things about these debates that we see between Jesus and these religious leaders. You have to understand every time you see a debate in the Gospels between Jesus and his followers and the religious leaders, that's not a debate between Christians and Jews. It is an inter-Jewish debate. These are Jews debating with each other. Jesus was a good Jew. Don't ever forget that Jesus was a good Jew. He was a good Torah-observing Jew. In the New Testament, every one of the Gospels, you see that Jesus would go to synagogue. You see, obviously, Jesus learned the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, well. You see that Jesus would, for instance, wear a prayer shawl whenever he would pray. That's what the woman touched when she touched the hem of his garment. She touched his prayer shawl. We see throughout the Gospels that Jesus observed the festivals, the primary festivals that would take him to Jerusalem. We call them the pilgrimage festivals. There's three primary festivals in Judaism, Passover, then there's Shavuot, or what we call Pentecost, and there's Sukkot, which they usually call Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. We see in the Gospels Jesus would go back to Jerusalem to celebrate those. He was a good Torah-observant Jew. As a matter of fact, my, my Wednesday Bible study uh, 
that begins on September the 22nd. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, but we're particularly going to be looking at the Gospel of John to notice how it is Jesus' experience with Jewish festivals that becomes the organizing factor in the Gospel of John. And we'll also see that how for the Gospel of John, you don't understand Jesus unless you understand how he lived and fulfilled those Jewish festivals of Passover, uh, Shavuot, Sukkot. So you need to remember that Jesus was a Torah observant Jew. So when you hear these debates, you need to make sure that you understand this is a family conflict. You know how families can be sometimes. This is a family conflict. They're debating with each other because we have a 2,000 year history of Christians looking at texts like this and becoming anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish and they're not reading the text correctly. You know, one of the things, and I'm not being stereotypical here because they would say the same thing, one of the things that we know about Jewish rabbis, Jewish theologians, Jewish seminarians or yeshiva students is they love to debate with each other. Have you ever seen Fitter on the Roof? Have you ever seen Yentl? They love to debate with each other. They take theological debate and they raise it to a whole new level in Judaism. When you're over there in the, their homeland of Israel, you think they're mad at each other, but they're just discussing Scripture. And that's what we see in the New Testament. Jesus, who was a Torah observant Jew, who was a first century rabbi, he's called that in the Gospels, he is debating with other leaders of the Jewish faith and they all have their own opinions about how you live in fulfillment of the law. Every living Jew today treats kosher laws differently. You know, I, I, I always love when I'm in Israel, I love introducing the world of kosher, kashrut, to my Gentile Christians that I take over there. We always stay in hotels that are Jewish, so the hotels always observe kosher, which sometimes my people wouldn't even notice that if I had not pointed it out. What they tend to notice is like in the mornings, we've got dairy there so that I can have creamer for my coffee, but at night, there's no dairy anywhere in the dining room because there's meat in the dining room, and according to kosher laws, you may know this, according to kosher laws, you cannot mix meat and dairy according to an interpretation for the book of Exodus and Leviticus. You cannot meet, you cannot mix meat and dairy. That's why I know, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but I know we're the one and only non-kosher McDonald's is in Jerusalem. And usually at night when my guide, who's very Jewish, is not with me, I will go to that non-kosher McDonald's and get me a cheeseburger. Just as an act of Christian freedom, I'll go get me a cheeseburger. But every Jew defines kosher differently, just like every Methodist Christian I know defines tithing differently and defines generosity differently. Well, every Jew defines kosher laws differently. So Jesus here is debating with some Jewish religious leaders. They think he and his followers are too lax in keeping kosher laws. But you need to make sure you understand what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here in this text is the same thing that Stephen Covey wrote in his classic work, you know, The Seven, highly, seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's the same thing that was quoted frequently by the bishop who ordained me, Bevel Jones. It's the quotation 
that says it, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's all Jesus is doing here. He, he's not opposed to rituals and traditions and rules. We all know that rituals and traditions and rules are good things. They give meaning to our lives. They help us organize our lives. They hold us together as a people. Sometimes in this contemporary Christian world, I have to convince some Christians that rules and rituals and traditions are good things. Jesus certainly as a poor observant Jew would believe that rules and rituals and traditions are good things, but you just need to keep them in their place. You need to keep the main thing the main thing. And for Jesus here, he's talking about the main thing, is not worrying about how the food you eat defiles. But think about a different kind of defilement. By the way, John Wesley, when he preached on this text, did say, Methodist, that it is important to pay attention to what we put into our bodies because he wants us to be healthy. The Bible wants us to be healthy. The Bible wants us to treat our bodies like temples of the Holy Spirit. So it does matter what we eat and what we don't eat. So Jesus is certainly not saying that at any level. He's just saying but there's something more important than what you take in that passes out to the sewer. That's his words. There's something more important, and he points out here in the text that the more important thing here is your heart. It is what comes from your heart that defiles you. It's not what you eat. It's not that you've eaten some pork or some shellfish that defiles you. It's what's in your heart that can defile you, defile the world around you, and defile the people that you love with whom you're in a relationship. So Jesus is saying we have to pay attention to our heart. Make sure that our heart is right. Do you realize that in the Bible, the word heart occurs over a thousand times? Because in the Bible, the condition of our heart is so important. In the Bible, in the Jewish way of thinking, the heart and the mind are the same thing. They really mean the same thing. The heart and the mind, that's the center of our moral decision-making. That's whatever it is inside of us that leads us to make our decisions about life and faith and practice and attitude. Our decisions come from within. The battle is won within. Our decisions are made within. And those decisions that we make within, in our heart, in our mind, is what determines the path of our life. Those decisions that we make within determines the choices we make. And then all of our choices that we make add up to become our life. So it's important that we keep our heart right. That's why, for instance, the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, verse 23, the author says, guard your heart. Protect your heart because the issue of all of life comes from your heart. So the Bible talks a lot about your heart, making sure that you guard it. You need to pay attention to, to your entertainment, to your reading, to what you do in your spare time, to the attitudes that you will entertain. Again, it's that computer principle, garbage in, garbage out. You need to pay attention to how you are protecting or guarding your heart because all of life issues from that center of your moral decision making. If you pay attention to just the activity but don't pay attention to your heart, you, you'll never get the activity right. But if you work on the heart, then perhaps 
the right activity will follow. You know that in the Bible there's actually a history of the heart? In the Bible you can track how God talks about the heart and what God has done historically for us concerning our hearts. Obviously in the Bible, all the Bible agrees uh, with the prophet Jeremiah who said our hearts are desperately wicked and they deceive us and none of us can understand our own hearts. We do those things that we don't want to do. So the Bible's clear that our hearts are deceptive. So we need to be careful when we talk about following our heart. I would not follow my heart unless I follow a regenerate, regenerated, redeemed heart. Our heart by nature is deceptive and wicked, the Bible says. But that same prophet, Jeremiah, just like Ezekiel, they, they were almost contemporaries of each other, and they were prophesying at one of the darkest periods in the history of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. It was such a wicked, wicked period. And as a matter of fact, the age was so wicked for Ezekiel and Jeremiah that um, God eventually used the Babylonians to come and destroy Jerusalem as a way of disciplining the Hebrew Israelite Jewish community. But Jeremiah prophesied right before the Babylonians came. Ezekiel prophesied right before the Babylonians came. And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel saw what God was going to do one day. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about there would come a point when God would enact a new covenant. Or another way of saying that, God would, what God would enact a new testament, new covenant, God would do at some point in history a new work for human hearts, made available to human hearts. And the way they define that day, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, is when the new covenant comes. That day, that day, God will write his law upon your heart. Write his law upon our hearts. It would not just be written down somewhere on a scroll, but it would be part of who we are. So that's the way Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about the coming new covenant. Well, the new covenant has come. Jesus brought the new covenant, the New Testament. And part of the new covenant is that because of the work of Jesus Christ, we can receive a heart transplant now. Because of the covenant of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, our hearts can be redeemed, cleansed, redirected, reoriented. That's what John Wesley meant by entire sanctification. Some of you that went through four sessions studying Methodist theology with me recently, you learned about what we mean by entire sanctification. What Wesley and what Methodists mean by entire sanctification is we think that God really will do what God says and God can take up residency in your heart and claim your heart. And you will become a new person because you've allowed Jesus Christ to take up residency in your heart. And he can become your all in all. Now that does not mean, obviously, that we never make mistakes. That does not mean, obviously, that our infirmities, our frailties, our brokenness will not impact the way we live. Because we know that as long as we're on this side of eternity in our body, we make mistakes. But this new heart can give us a new motivation. This new heart that Jesus wants to give us can plant deep within us a right want to. 
And we can really want to love God and love neighbor more than anything else. We can want to. Now, again, we'll never do that perfectly, but that can be our providing, prevailing, overriding desire in life. God can grant us a new motivation by granting us a new heart. Let me, let me come to a close with an illustration of what that may look like. It comes from the life of Robert Coleman, who was a great professor of evangelism for way over 20 years at Asbury Theological Seminary. And this is the way he, adv- this is the way he illustrated uh, a pure heart or a perfect heart or a heart that's been given to God or a heart that's been given to Jesus Christ. Illustrated this way. He told the story about how one day he was out working in his yard. It was a hot Kentucky summer. And uh, he's out there working in his yard. Of course, perspiration is, is rolling. His young son saw how hot he was, saw how he was sweating out there working in his yard. So his young son decided to do something for his daddy. His, the young son went and pushed a chair up to the sink and he got up there turned on the water and he grabbed a dirty glass and he filled it with lukewarm water and he took it out there to his daddy and Robert Coleman says the glass may have been dirty and the water warm but it was brought to me in perfect love God can give us a new heart, can give us a new want to, can give us a new motivation. God can give us a redirected heart. The old heart is directed towards self and selfishness, but God can give us a redirected heart that's directed to God. You know, every time we come to worship, and we actually need to do this every day, we have to reorient our hearts because life is tough. And life will work on us till our hearts are turned away from God to other matters. But we have to keep reorienting our heart back Godward. The prophet Ezekiel, when he's talking about the new covenant, what God will do one day in human hearts, he said that God will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Life makes our hearts hard. But God's work through the power of the Spirit in our lives can allow the oil and the wine of the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts. And you can get a heart of flesh in exchange for a heart of stone. The new covenant has been realized. Jesus has brought about this new work in the world. And the work of Jesus now can purify, cleanse, redirect, reorient our hearts. I hope that you have spent much of your life as a Christian praying for a redirected heart, praying for a reoriented heart, and that you have tried to tenaciously hold on to that heart of flesh that God gave you to replace that heart of stone. But life being what it is tends to pull us in other directions. The world is so full of distractions. So my friends, I want to pray with you, with us right now. And what I want us to do in prayer is to offer our hearts, our minds, our hearts, the center of our moral decision making. 
the center of our wills to God so that God, and he promises to do this, God can wholly sanctify us. One of the favorite verses from the New Testament among Methodist types is Paul's benediction at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Make you holy through and through. Sanctify you holy. May God do this. May your whole spirit, Paul said, your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a tall order. It's a tall order. But the next thing that Paul says is, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. God wants to give us a new heart, one that's directed only toward him. May I pray with you? God, thank you for bringing us together to speak to us this morning by your word, through your word. May we truly make an offering of our lives to you. May we truly offer you our hearts. May we truly invite Jesus Christ to take up residency in our hearts and to rule and reign completely. May we be as holy as redeemed sinners can be. May we have hearts that are redirected, hearts that are undivided, hearts that are oriented toward you. Give us a supernatural motivation in life as we seek to serve you. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.